One of four young boys, uh, you can imagine, often had difficulty containing their energy. Uh, they uh, would always be into to different things, and especially in church. They were, they were kind of difficult to control sometimes. Uh, but when her minister preached on turning the other cheek, the boys gave him their undivided attention. No matter what others do to us, he said, we should never try to get even. That afternoon, the youngest boy came in the house crying. Between sobs, he said he'd kick one of his brothers, and his brother kicked him back. I'm sorry you're hurt, his mother said, but you shouldn't go around kicking people. Still choking back tears, he replied, but the preacher said he isn't supposed to kick me back. You know, uh, I think sometimes preachers do Christians a disservice. And saying and stressing the blessings of the Christian life without preparing us for opposition. And yes, I believe there's no better way to live than as a follower of Christ. I believe there are blessings as you learn to die to self and instead give yourself to Christ that you cannot receive in any other way. But I also would be remiss if I did not tell you that sometimes those who don't know Christ will kick you back. They will persecute you in both ways that are physical, other ways that are emotional, and uh, it can be tough to be a Christian. I talked about last week, and we're continuing this series through Matthew 10 of, of being not ashamed of being a Christian, I, I told you that the times are getting harder for Christians even in our country. And I believe that will continue. So I think it is good for us to take this journey through Matthew 10 where Jesus was preparing his disciples for a lifetime of discipleship. He was preparing his disciples for both the good and the not so good, the tough times that would come as they followed him. And today I, I think we really, as we look at uh, verses 16 through 28 of Matthew 10, I, I think we really are answering the question, how should Christians deal with opposition? How should Christians deal with opposition? And in Jesus' answer, I, I think you see two similes and three commands. And so we're going to look at those together, two similes and, and three commands, answering the question, how should Christians deal with opposition? The first simile is, both of them, these two similes, both are in verse 16. <clears throat> the first simile is uh, sheep and wolves. The verse goes like this. I'm sending you out uh, like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. <clears throat> Quite interesting. Similes are when you compare two different things and <clears throat> you compare and contrast them. Uh, it's a, ver a word form. Uh, this simile, sheep and wolves... It, it makes it sound exactly like what it'll be, uh, that uh, you, as a, a follower of Christ, you will take on that, uh, that imagery of a sheep. Now, we know there's some good things about that. Psalm 23 tells us that uh, God is our good shepherd. Uh, John, uh, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus is our good shepherd as well. And these things we know, that he will take care of us, he'll provide for us that he will protect us. But here, it's pretty graphic. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. What did he mean? 
What happens if a, a sheep gets in the midst of a wolf pack? Not pretty. And so it is that sometimes by the mere presence of a follower of Christ, you'll antagonize people who don't believe, people who think there is no God, or, or people who just aren't sure but know that they don't want to be anywhere around or anywhere under the influence of a follower of Christ, and there will be opposition, sometimes violent. Sheep and wolves, you understand, the sheep live by grazing. They live by plant matter, whereas the wolves live by predation. Now, I don't think wolves are evil. That's the way they were created. But in this simile that he's giving us, he's making clear that there's no way to follow Christ without sometimes antagonizing folks. And maybe you've had that experience, particularly if you became a Christian outside of a Christian background, a Christian home. Uh, Maybe you've had that experience. When you chose to follow Christ, it brought opposition. It brought questioning. It brought doubting from people, even your parents, your brothers or your sisters. And this chapter will take up that theme throughout it. That oftentimes, giving our allegiance to Christ, choosing to follow Christ, will bring opposition from those closest to us. Like sheep among wolves, you go out. And then this interesting simile of snakes and doves. You can't think of many animals that are more in contrast than snakes and doves. Now, some of you, I I need you to set aside your deep-held antipathy for serpents, for snakes, right? Right? Some of you don't even want to think about snakes, much less be anywhere close to one. And he says, you Christians, you're to be like snakes, but in a certain way. You're to be shrewd as snakes, and then as innocent as doves. It's one of the sayings from Jesus that's always fascinated me, snakes and doves. What does he mean? Well, we tend to anthropomorphize animals, that is, we give them human qualities, But here, I think, if if you don't understand so much the word shrewd, or if that doesn't make as much sense, I I think you could translate this wise. You need to be as wise as doves. So, if you're going into a a culture that's hostile toward Christianity, and remember, as I shared with you last week, we sometimes look at our our world today, our our country today, and see how it's becoming increasingly uh, hostile toward Christianity, and think, man, times are getting bad. Well, they started in bad times. It started in a time where it was a pagan, immoral, idolatrous culture. The Roman government overruling uh, the the people of Israel, many of whom were polytheistic or pagan. And in that culture, uh, the Christians also were persecuted to the point that many of them, some uh, 20, 30 years after Christ, they ended up in prison. They ended up being killed. For their faith. It was in hard times that the church was born. It's in hard times that the church perhaps will see in the future. And to combat that, our mindset should be to be as wise, as discerning as snakes, but as innocent as does. Be wise, but not violent. Be wise, but not return that agonism antagonism. Be wise, 
be discerning. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in how to interact, in how to resist, and how to remain true to Christ in the midst of opposition and persecution. And as so many things, that's much more an art than a science. It's difficult for today for me to imagine every kind of scenario in which we might be challenged for our faith. We might be persecuted for our faith. So it's difficult for me to outline for you all the ways that we might be shrewd. But what I, I think it means is this. Seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit and seek to interact, to re- react to any kind of opposition, antagonism. Seek to, to react to that as Jesus would. For we see Jesus set that pattern. Jesus, even in this three-year window in which his public ministry commenced, he faced opposition. He was called terrible things like the devil. Beelzebub, we'll, we'll see in a few minutes. He was called Beelzebub. That people thought, the Jewish leaders thought, he was the very embodiment of Satan. And so it is that we have a great example to follow. And in fact, that'll be one of the commands that he gives us in a few verses down. So let's move to three commands. I think these three commands kind of flesh out for us in general. As I said, I, could, I can't give you all the scenarios to give you specifics, but I, I think it fleshes out for us in general what we're to do in the face of opposition as we face uh, insults because of our faith, maybe at work, maybe from family members, as we face uh, challenges uh, to uh, our promotion at work, uh, how do we respond? How, do we, how are we shrewd? How are we wise like serpents? Three commands here. First, stand firm. Stand firm. Verses 17 through 22. Be on your guard. <clears throat> You'll be handed over to the local councils, councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will be not you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's hard to to understand, but I I think uh, as you practice that, as you learn, and we talked a few weeks ago, had a series on the Holy Spirit. As you learn to let the Holy Spirit lead you in what you say, you, you know how this works. You, as you trust God, as you ask Him to, to speak to, through His Holy Spirit, uh, through your lips, uh, it can happen. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end, will be saved. The one who stands firm. What does that mean? A person who is resolute, who doesn't compromise in what they believe, in what Christ stands for. Now, this is a a tough experience. These are a set of tough experiences he's talking about. Where there is imprisonment, there is flogging in the, the public culture. And we know this happened to many of the disciples. And yet the encouragement is the same. Stand firm. First Peter talked about this as well. First Peter is written to a bunch of Christians who are undergoing persecution because of being loyal to Christ. And it says this in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 4. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That's a mindset that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but, but it is one, I think, that is exactly what we need to hear. Yes, if you stand out enough to be different because of your loyalty to Christ, then a loyalty or promotion of self, yes, you're getting to where God wants you to be. A person who has character, a person who has a solid belief in both who they are and what is important in life. And because of that, even in that that persecution, in those, those tough times that come because of your faith, you stand firm because you're making a difference, because your message is ringing out. Howard Hendricks said, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. In the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. We need to stand our ground in regard to our faith in Christ, but do it in a loving way. Unfortunately, sometimes Christians uh, take and respond in kind. When challenged, when made fun of, we revert and do the same thing. We retaliate in kind. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Ephesians 4.15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. It's vital for us to stand our ground, but stand our ground in a way that's loving. You see, that's being shrewd as snakes. The second command is to follow the leader. Follow the leader. This is in verses 23 to 25. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, uh, how much more are the members of his household? That is always a tongue twister, Beelzebub. But what, what are we saying here? Now, you might be confused. I just said stand firm, and then it says if you're persecuted in one town, you flee to the other. What do I mean by that? How do I understand it? I understand it this way. I think the Holy Spirit, as you learn to follow his leading, will, will take you to where you need to go. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, you need to stand firm right where you are. You need to stay where you are. Other times, the Holy Spirit will take you somewhere else. And we see this with Jesus. He didn't always avoid confrontations. But, but sometimes when things were, were heating up, he would go to another place. Or he'd go away to uh, by, be by himself and pray and meditate. So also, again, it's why it's hard for me to tell each of you how to respond in every situation. I, I think the Holy Spirit is a much better voice than I can be, I can give you. You let the Holy Spirit lead you, but, but you follow the leader, the example. 
And that's what he says. How can a servant be above his master? How can the student be above his teacher? Sometimes I think we, we think it's too simplistic to try to be like Jesus in every uh, decision that we make, every act that we make. But I, I would argue that is exactly uh, the principle we need to follow. I also would say it's one of the, the, the challenges, uh, the reactions I have uh, to some of the teaching that goes on today in ministry training. Uh, some ministry training schools teach that, that ministers are to come in and equip the flock. They're to, to teach the people to do the ministry. And then they just are organizers and administrators. They don't actually do the ministry. <laughs> How is that found in the New Testament, you see? I always think, as you lead by example, so the people in your department will follow. So the people in your family will follow. So the people in your church will follow. If we want our people, our co-workers, our kids to serve, then we sure ought to be living it first rather than just teaching it. And Jesus did this. Jesus faced tremendous persecution, such as being called a devil. You look in Luke 11, you see that. The religious leaders called him Beelzebul. Now, Jesus has a great retort for them. Uh, Just a few verses later in Luke chapter 11, he says, How could I be casting out demons if I'm Satan? Can Satan's house be divided? (laughs) It makes no sense, does it? For the king of the demons to be casting out the demons... He says, of course, I'm not Beelzebul, but he was called vicious names, as such as the devil. And yet, he persisted, he persevered, and so, if we're going to emulate the leader, if we're going to live like Jesus, uh, then we're not going to be afraid of situations in which we face some opposition, we face some persecution, shrewd as snake Christians, don't always avoid those confrontations, but we follow and we try to act and interact as Jesus would. The third command I see here is in verses 26 to 28. Do not fear. Do not fear. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's an interesting construction. I think he's he's saying there are some things that the world cannot know. They're not meant to know right now. But don't you know, as, as Jesus went through the crucifixion, the resurrection, as he ascended back to the Father... His words made more sense to them. And he left behind, and through God and the Spirit's interaction, they created the church, which would stand for the truth, which would stand for the gospel, which would stand for uh, calling people to account, but also uh, extending grace, extending the ability to be forgiven if you confess those sins, extending the ability to believe in Christ and 
thereby when we breathe our last breath, not be dead forever or gone to eternal punishment, instead to have a new body and to live with God forever. This is the truth that would be revealed over time. But as he says here, it, it is something that's going to be a, a process of revelation. And even more, you need to know what is the greatest failure. See, I, I think fear of failure bedevils many of us. It leads to, to coping mechanisms that are harmful in their playing out in our lives. Fearing of failure. But I believe we fear failing in the wrong areas, most of us. I think what he says here is is to know what's most important. To know what is most valuable. To live a life that's loyal to God. To live a life in which you're a part of giving this life-changing word to other people. To have a burden for the lost. To have a burden for people that that don't know Christ. So much so that even if they're hostile toward you, you continue to share the message. Because after all, what worse consequence is there than being eternally lost and eternally punished? So instead of fearing rejection, instead of fearing the failure of social popularity, you should fear most that people won't know the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't know this name before this week, but in my research, I came across the name Armando Valladares. Armando Valladares received the Beckett Prize in May of this year. And... As I read about him, I discovered that in 1960, he was a a postal worker in Cuba. And initially, he was a supporter of Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution, Communist Revolution, but but he could not go along as Castro's anti-theistic properties and policies became more apparent. And so he refused uh, when they asked him to put a sign on his desk at work that said, I'm with Fidel, he refused because he was a believer. He was a Christian. For 22 years, he was in prison. Eight years in solitary confinement with no clothes, no access to the facilities, forced to sometimes eat his own excrement. His crime? Being a believer. And so he accepted this prize in May of this year. And what he said sinks deep into my soul. And it's so appropriate for what we're talking about today. This is what he said, and I quote, as he received this prize. I'm not an extraordinary man. I'm quite ordinary. But God chose me for something quite extraordinary. When I was 23 years old, I refused to do something at that time that seemed very small. I refuse to say a few words. I'm with Fidel. First, I refused to sign on my desk at the postal office that said that. And after years of torture and watching many fellow fighters die, either in body or spirit, I still refused to say those words. If I just said those three little words, 
I would have been released from prison. My story is proof that a small act of defiance can mean everything for the Friends of Liberty. They did not keep me in jail for 22 years because my refusal to say three words meant nothing. In reality, those three words meant everything. Listen to this. For me to say those words would have constituted a type of spiritual suicide. Even though my body was in prison and being tortured, my soul was free and flourished. My jailers took everything away from me, but they could not take away my conscience or my faith. Even when we have nothing, each person and only that person possesses the key to his or her own conscience, his or her own sacred castle. In that respect, each of us, though we may not have an earthly castle or even a house, each of us is richer than a king or queen. The little sisters of the poor know this. They may be called the little sisters of the poor, and yet they are rich in that they live out their conscience, which no government bureaucrat can invade. They know that what my body knows after 22 years of cruel torture, that if they sign the form, the government demands they will be violating their conscience and would commit spiritual suicide. If they did, they would forfeit the true and only wealth they have and abandoning the castle of their consciences. And so I salute the little sisters of the poor for their seemingly small act of defiance. I'm here to tell you that every little act counts. No man or woman is too small or simple to be called, to be a witness to this truth. I'm here to remind you that each of you possesses great wealth in the sacred domain of your conscience. And I'm here to tell you that each of you is called to stay true. I'm also here to tell you that when you make that choice, from that moment forward, even if you're naked, in solitary confinement for eight years, you are never alone because God is there with you. Listen to this. For many of you, particularly the young people, it may seem I come from a faraway land from a, a long time ago. Young friends, you may not be taken away at gunpoint, as I was for staying true to my conscience. But there are many other ways to take you away to imprison your body and your mind. There are many ways you could be silenced in your schools, your universities, in your workplace. But don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Stand true. And be rich in what matters. Be rich in what matters. Fathers, we think about these things today. Every act matters. Every word matters. Maybe we realize today we've been afraid of the wrong things. Let us stand. Wisely, shrewdly, but let us stand and be counted.
Let us be true to who you are. Let us be true to what can be. Let us be true to the mission. Let us be true to bringing life where there is death. Let us be true to bringing freedom where there is imprisonment. Let us be true to being brave and not afraid. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.